read your bulletin, you probably know that we're not encountering the Bible one book at a time today. You're supposed to be in Hebrews, and I kind of threw a curveball and said one Peter. I got asked about that this morning, and I said, uh, we're going to do something a little different today. And uh, so we're going to get back to Hebrews next week when uh, Brett gets back. But uh, something moved me this past week that I wanted to talk about to you today. It was kind of funny as I was preparing to uh, deliver the message. You, would, you know, it's tough. It's tough picking a message. You've got to find something that's deep and meaningful, and you've got to find something that you think is going to reach everybody at some level. And that's not easy. We have a pretty diverse congregation. And so I was going through a book that had images and quotations and that kind of stuff in it. And it was alphabetical, and I was at the S's. So you know how many things I had looked at without much inspiration? And then I found it. Spiritual warfare. I love that topic. I love the topic of spiritual warfare. And I thought, this is it. I got it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little piece on spiritual warfare. And I started outlining in my head, and I was real pleased with myself. I, I went to bed that night. Yes, I finally, this is going to be great. I woke up the next morning, and it started to happen. The doubt started creeping in. Started hearing things like, are you nuts? You're going to talk to a Calvary Baptist about spiritual warfare? I started hearing things like, you know the older members of the congregation aren't going to like that. Started hearing things like, you're going to confuse them. They're not going to get it, and you're just going to leave them all wondering what the heck you're talking about. And I started to vacillate. I said, you know what, maybe that is a little too intense. Maybe that is a little too deep. Maybe that's just, maybe that's just something I like. Maybe I'm just doing this for me. And then it hit me. The irony of the situation. I was going to talk to you today about spiritual warfare, and I was under spiritual attack not to talk to you about spiritual warfare. And I thought, ooh, devil, you are good. If there's something you're good at, you're a great strategist. You almost got me. Almost. So today I'm going to talk to you about some things we don't talk much about in church. I'm going to talk to you about Satan. I'm going to tell you what he is, but more importantly, what he's not. I'm going to talk to you about what spiritual warfare is, what it looked like in Scripture, how we can identify it, and what it looks like in your own lives. And more importantly, I'm going to tell you about what we do about it. You know, I'm a big believer that if you are a Christian, you are under spiritual warfare, whether you know it or not. And the reason is, the devil wants to disrupt your relationship with God. So if you have a relationship with God, he's after you. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So you ready? Let's get ready to rumble, okay? Let's do this. In April 2009, the Barna Group released a survey. They talked to 1,871 Americans that were self-proclaimed Christians, and they started asking them questions about their Christianity. And one of the questions was, what do you think God is? And the good news was 78% said that God, quote, is all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of the universe who rules the world today. 78%. Kind of makes you wonder what the other 22% are thinking, but that's okay. The bad news was 59%, 59% of these self-identified Christians who just got done saying that God was all-powerful, ruler of the universe, said that, quote, that Satan, quote, is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. Only 35% believed that Satan was 
a living being. Anybody read C.S. Lewis? I like C.S. Lewis. Sometimes he confuses me, but I like him. And he said this, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about Satan. One is to disbelieve in him, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. I agree with that. One is not to believe at all. One is to think too highly or too much of him. It's this excessive and unhealthy interest that has given us an image of Satan that is inaccurate and dangerous in our fight, in our spiritual warfare against him. If we're going to be victorious in our battles, our daily battles against Satan, we have to know exactly what we're dealing with. So I was wondering what today's culture thought Satan was. So I went to Google, went to the internet, I went to Google Images to get pictures. I said, what does Satan look like? And up came all these pictures. And aside from the picture here or there of uh, George Bush and Dick Cheney, um, there was pictures of Satan. (laughs) And most of the pictures had a red-faced guy. He had horns. He had a tail. Sometimes he had legs like a man. Sometimes there were goat legs. And I just chuckled. Because that is not what Scripture says. Satan looks like, is it? Mm -mm. Scripture tells us that Satan is a fallen angel. So chances are he's going to look like an angel, right? Old Testament mentions angels 108 times. The New Testament mentions them 165 times. So chances are pretty good we have some information about angels. Angels are spirit beings according to Psalms 104 verse 4, but they've been known to appear as men. If you go to Genesis 19, Mark 1, John 20. Satan is described in 2 Corinthians 11.4 as masquerading as an angel of light. That's a far cry from a guy with horns, isn't it? We know they have inconceivable power according to 2 Kings 19.35, but they're not omnipotent like God. We know their wisdom is extensive, according to 2 Samuel 14.20. But they're not omniscient. They don't know everything like God. And we know that man was made a little lower than the angels, according to Hebrews 2.7. There's a theologian I like by the name of Elmer Towns. He was one of my professors. And he says, The very nature of Satan is to deceive concerning his identity and purpose. The very nature of Satan is to deceive you by his identity and his purpose. So chances are pretty darn good that Satan's not going to show up on your doorstep wearing a red suit with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Why? That doesn't deceive you, does it? You would recognize him. He's going to show up in a form that can get close to you. Because you can't be deceived if he can't get near you. See, I think we confuse ourselves a little bit when we read Scripture because there's lots of metaphors for Satan in Scripture. In Scripture, Satan is the serpent. He's the roaring lion. He's the dragon. He's the prince of demons. He's Leviathan. He's the beast of the bottomless pit. When we hear these words, we don't imagine Satan as the angel of light. We imagine him entirely differently and kind of scary, right? That's where Hollywood gets its image of all this. 
But let me ask you this. If a lion or a serpent or a dragon or a leviathan, whatever that is, showed up at your doorstep, what would you do? Invite him in for tea? I don't think so. I think that you would recognize it for what it was and shut the door and go hide under the covers. Satan's going to show up instead as an angel of light. He's going to show up something appealing to you because he's got to get close to you. But don't be deceived. There's a reason God used those metaphors of the serpent and the lion and all that. He's trying to tell you what Satan's true nature is. He's going to show up in a form you like, but you're not going to like who he is once you meet him. So what is spiritual warfare? What is this this topic that I've chosen to talk to you about today? Simply put, it's Satan's attempt to move you away from God and his plan for you by convincing you to use your own free will to make choices that go against what God would have you do. In other words, Satan's trying to mess up God's plan for you. He's trying to mess up your relationship with him. He's going to pull you away any way he can so that you cannot have that relationship. I want to drive home a point here. How many of you remember Flip Wilson from the 70s? Great comedian. In preparation for this, I actually got to watch some of his old skits. Do you remember the one where he went, the devil made me do it? Remember that? That was big during the 70s. The devil made me do it. I didn't do it. The devil made me do it. Let me tell you something, folks. The devil makes you do nothing. The devil makes you do nothing because the devil has zero power over you. What he does instead is even more insidious. He induces you to use your own God-given free will to follow his half-truths instead of God's whole truth. We, my friends, are our own worst enemy because we're not clever enough or smart enough or fast enough not to believe the half-truths because they're so appealing. Let me give you some examples of spiritual warfare in Scripture. Why don't you take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Someone say amen when they get there. Okay, Genesis, that's that first book. Here we go. This is the, the quintessential battle scene. It's the first battle scene between Satan and man. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, stop there. Already in his first lines, he's twisted it twice. Did God really say? He's trying to put doubt in the mind of the person that God has the authority to say it. Did he really say that? Did he really? And then he says, did he say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God didn't say that, did he? He's twisting, twisting. There's some truth, there's twisting. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Satan replies, you will certainly not die. There's truth to that. You're not going to keel over if you eat the apple, are you? You're going to have spiritual death, which is what God was talking about, but you're not going to die. 
Then certain, he goes on and says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Why did Satan get kicked out of heaven? Because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to sit on the throne. He thought he was as important as God or even better. So here he is, twisting again, telling Eve, God's wrong. He's just playing with you. He just doesn't want you to have the stuff you like. So, you're not going to die, and you'll be like him if you eat this. So, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, a little desire there, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, so she interpreted knowing good and evil as wisdom, she took some and ate. She also gave it to her knucklehead husband, who was with her, and said nothing, and ate of it too. Round one to Satan. See how he used those half-truths and the lies to convince Adam and Eve to fall away from God? To disrupt their relationship with God? Now, we know the rest of that story, don't we? They get kicked out of the garden, their life is hard, and thank you, Adam and Eve, for everything you've done for us today. But Adam and Eve are not our only examples of spiritual warfare. It's just the easiest to find. Let me read you a few things I found in Scripture that I would classify as spiritual warfare. Cain succumbs to his anger and pride and kills Abel. Abraham doesn't trust God to protect, he, protect him, so he says his wife Sarah is his sister. Twice. Abraham and Sarah don't trust God, so Sarah gets Hagar to sleep with Abraham so they can have a child. The Israelites, including Aaron, decide to make a golden calf while Moses is on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Moses... He kills an Egyptian and disobeys God by smacking the rock to get the water out of it instead of talking to it like he was supposed to, which cost him his trip to the Holy Land. In both cases, he fell to his anger. The spies go to Canaan. And what do they say? Woo, we're too scared to go in there. All but, jo- uh, all but Joshua and Caleb, all of them, are too fearful and don't believe in the Lord. David, what can you say about this guy? doesn't go to war in the spring when he's supposed to. He spies Bathsheba. He sleeps with her and and ensures that her husband, Uriah, who, by the way, was with him in the wilderness for all those years when Saul was trying to get him, he ensures Uriah gets killed by putting him in the front of the battle. But David's not done. He decides to take a census of his people so he can show the worldly strength he has instead of relying on God. Solomon, love this guy, he tried everything under the sun only to realize that the only thing worth anything is God. Samson didn't use his gifts for the right purpose, did he? Kind of toyed with Delilah until they finally cut his hair. And that was it for him. Poor Job. Job wasn't just afflicted by the boils and the stuff that was being done to him. He had these three knucklehead friends that kept on saying, oh, that's your fault. Spiritual warfare by his friends. Jonah ran away from God because he didn't want to do what God wanted him to, because he didn't think it was right, as if Jonah knew better than God what was right. Let's turn to the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, remember these two? Remember in Acts, everyone was coming together, and they were bringing their property, and they were selling it and bringing, bringing the money so they could live and help people. And Ananias and Sapphira came in and told them they had given everything when, in fact, they had pocketed some of it. They're the only people that get smoked in the New Testament. The church at Corinth. Paul's written two letters to them that we have 
where he's having to defend the fact that he can speak the word of God because they were not going to listen to sound doctrine. Back to my buddy Towns, he says, Satan's strategy is to include enough truth in his teachings to make error appear both credible and palatable. Let's take a look at these stories. See how Jonah is right that Nineveh is evil and wicked? God tells Jonah to go, go be a prophet to them, to tell them to clean up their act. And, and he's like, no, they're wicked. They should be smote. He doesn't want to do what God told him to. Do you see during the culture of the time how getting Hagar to have a baby for a barren wife would be okay? In that culture, that was normal. Have a servant, have a child when the wife could not. What's wrong with that? There are 16 and 613 rules that the Pharisees used. But did you know each one of those relates directly to Scripture? Of the 613 rules? So what's so wrong about just enforcing the things Scripture tells you to enforce? Do you see the half-truths in all that? Satan is a crafty guy. Crafty. There's just enough truth there for man to justify his actions against God. Well, I'll tell you that Satan hasn't changed since being thrown out of heaven. He's intent on filling our minds with half-truths so that we too will justify our actions based on worldly standards instead of embracing God's love, his plan, his blessings, his grace, and everything he has for us. So what am I talking about? How does this relate to you? Well, let's bring this a little closer to home. Are you ready? Satan fills people's minds with negative self-talk, where people tear themselves down as inadequate, stupid, unlovable, guilty, failures, deserving punishment, being a bad mom and dad, being a terrible Christian who God cannot possibly love, and other thoughts that rip apart the very being so they cannot accept God's love, forgiveness, or even the fact that God made you on purpose for his will. Satan's plan is to fill you with so many negative thoughts that you don't accept God's grace in your life. Satan applauds selfishness. When you think of yourself and your needs before those of others, you are justified at getting mad at the jerk in traffic who cut you off. You're right to give that coworker a piece of your mind because he didn't pull his weight. It's okay to get divorced if you're not fulfilled in your marriage. It's even okay to have an affair nowadays if your wife or husband can't satisfy you. Anger, jealousy, vengefulness, gossip, abuse, and more are okay because the target of your emotions deserves it for what they did to you. Satan cheers you on. Drowning out the voice of the Holy Spirit who's screaming at you, repent and seek the face of God. Satan convinces you after all this time in church and all the Bible reading you've done, you're good to go. You know everything. You're set. You don't need Sunday school anymore. You don't need to read scripture every day. You don't need to pray. You don't need to sit on boards and councils and serve your church. That's somebody else's turn now. You know your Bible and you don't need small groups or Bible studies no, not at this stage of your life. You're too old to use your spiritual gifts. Satan wants you to believe that you are no longer useful to God and that God is pretty much done with you in his life. He's wishing you a happy spiritual retirement so that you don't fulfill the race. Remember Paul saying we, we have to finish the race? Satan doesn't want you to finish the race. 
Satan is great at telling you that Scripture is relative. Take the stuff you like, throw out the stuff you don't like. Too poor to tithe, that's okay, God loves you. Don't like some of the social rules? Oh well, they were cultural. They weren't meant for our time. It's really okay to have premarital sex and all the rest. And the church calls for holding Christians accountable. That's really judgment, and you know you're not supposed to judge. So don't hold anybody accountable, because that would be bad. Hmm. The Bible is written by men, just like you and I. It's a guide. God gave you a brain, so figure it out yourself. Satan convinces us that God really doesn't care for us. Where is God when our spouse dies of cancer? Where is God when a child is abused? Where is God when a tsunami wipes out 10,000 people? Where is this so-called loving God of yours? Satan pushes you to blame God for this fallen world instead of blaming him and ourselves. Satan tells us God is a cosmic killjoy. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's all about the rules. How about living once? How about stop being such a goody two-shoes? You only have one life to live, so you better live it to the full. You can repent later. And Satan will try to convince you that your faith is weak. Do you really hear someone answer back when you pray? Come on. Have you actually seen Jesus? Other than a book written by men to perpetuate the story, where's the proof of all these miracles? Religion is just a crutch for weak-minded people who cannot rely on themselves. Am I talking to anyone today? Or is Satan whispering in your ear that you should be offended by some of this? Are you experiencing spiritual warfare right now? I was this morning because I knew what this thing said. And Satan was after me. Whew. He did not want me to talk about this. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan is the prince of this world. And as Christians, he is attacking us every day. So what do we do about it? How can you fight an angel? They're more clever than we are. They're clearly smarter and faster and brighter and all that stuff. How in the world do you fight something like that? Three ways. Scripture, prayer, and action. After his baptism, Jesus heads to the desert filled with the Holy Spirit to do battle with Satan. Three times Satan tempts Jesus, twisting Scripture and trying to provoke Jesus. If you would turn in your, in your Bibles to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Let's see how Jesus was tempted in all ways like us. Then Jesus was led, a, led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is in a weakened state. Imagine not eating for 40 days. I can't do it for 40 minutes. 
Satan tempts him first by placing doubt on him being the son of God. If you are the son of God, Satan knows exactly who he is. He's trying to tick him off. He's trying to provoke Jesus' pride. Satan tempts him to take care of himself physically by misusing his authority to turn stones into bread. And Jesus responds with Scripture. Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had ever known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Scripture. Next, Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself from the heights to prove his authority. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What Satan did was he took Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, and he quoted them to Jesus. He used them out of context. Imagine that. Satan knowing the Bible, because he's an angel, but using it out of context to, con- to deceive you. Again, Jesus responds with Scripture. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa, which is Deuteronomy 6.16. Finally, Satan tempts Jesus a third time, saying he will give Jesus all the kingdoms he can see, if he would bow down before him. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, if you will bow down and worship me. See, Satan still wants to be God. In front of Jesus, the Son of God, Satan is still wanting to act like he's God. Jesus responds, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. Again, Jesus responds with Scripture, this time Deuteronomy 6.13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. See, three times Satan tempts Jesus, and three times Jesus rebukes Satan using Scripture. What Jesus did not do was get into an argument with him. This was not a debating society. Mm -mm. Mm. The Word became flesh. Turn to the power of the word to defeat Satan. Do you find yourself debating Satan? You ever been to those moments where you're like, well, Satan, if you blah, 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 and you end up in this argument, you're not going to win. He's smarter than you. Sorry. So Jesus says, don't argue with Satan. Don't debate Satan. Simply use the word. Use the power of the word. That's our first tool. Prayer. David is our model for the next weapon we have against Satan, prayer. I love reading the Psalms because they are absolutely raw. You get the full emotion of what the psalmist is feeling at that moment. I want to read you some of David's Psalms and what he cried out to God under his moments of spiritual warfare. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help. My King and my God, for you to, for, to you I pray. Psalm 6, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me with your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. 
My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes and where I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Anybody else out there ever feel that way? Where are you? I'm dying here. I really need you, like right now. What David teaches us is that we are to cry out to God in our pain and in our weakness. We seek his face when we're attacked by Satan. Don't be shy. Tell it like it is. God is big enough to handle whatever you have to say. If you read the rest of the Psalms, 4, 5, 6, 10, and 13, you will see how God answers David. He provides him love and peace and grace and soothes his soul. How would you like to have your souls soothed by Jesus? Turn to him. Turn to him in prayer. If you feel you're under attack, go to Scripture and go to prayer. James 4, 7 tells us, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Oh, if it were that easy, right? <laughs> I'm resisting, I'm resisting, he's not fleeing. So how do we actively resist? What does that look like? First, we have to know when we're under attack, huh? Anybody ever been under attack and not realize it until it was too late? I have. And then like, oh, darn, I should have seen that. My litmus test I've shared with you before, but I want to share it again. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the spiritual fruit are love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. For me, when I'm not feeling those things, I'm usually feeling anger, frustration, depression, irritation, something other than these fruit. And that is when I am right there for attack. When I'm not in the Spirit of the Lord. When I'm not in a place in good fellowship with God. When I'm feeling things other than that fruit. That's my weak link. And that's when Satan can come and get me. Ephesians 6, 10-18 tells us this. Finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. You've all heard this. How many of you put on part of the armor of God? <laughs> I got the shield. That's Satan's nipping at your ankles. It says here, put on the full armor of God. Part of it won't work. Full armor of God. So that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. You're going to stand. You're not going to retreat. You're going to stand. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We've read that. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Do not retreat. Do not surrender. Do not do what we used to call a rear guard action. Stand your ground. 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. What is the belt of truth? Scripture, my friends. The breastplate of righteousness. That's knowing God loves you. That's knowing God sees you as righteous. We may see ourselves differently, but God, through the work of Jesus Christ, sees us as righteous and holy. Understand that. Nothing can touch you because you are righteous in God's eyes. And with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, proclaim Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the, all the flaming arrows. So you keep that, that shield up there. You stay, you stay faithful. You don't believe it when the devil tells you you are weak and that your faith is nothing. You stand firm in your faith. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Put on the full armor of God, folks. Third, we defeat Satan by practicing the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments from Matthew 22. Friends, love and don't hate. Love and don't react. Love and don't seek vengeance. Love and don't be offended. Love and don't be prideful. Love and don't be selfish. Love and don't get angry. Love and don't be jealous. Love and don't believe the lies that Satan tells you about not being good enough. Love and overcome yourselves. Show the world agape and Satan can't touch you. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you don't believe this, you've already lost. If you do, and you believe in spiritual warfare, be sure to make it something, don't make it something it's not. Don't blow this thing up into something that's scary and something it isn't. It's simple. You are God's children. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are protected. And you have every single weapon at your disposal to defeat Satan every day. Satan will come through to you through deception. He will attack you with half-truths. He will attack you where you are weakest. And the truth be known, we're going to lose some of the battles. We are. But understand clearly that the war has been won. And it was won by Jesus Christ on a cross at Calvary. Satan is a loser. And it's one you can beat every day if you rely on Scripture, prayer, and action. Amen. How's that for something a little different? I see his wide eyes out there. We are going to, uh, I think we're going to sing again, aren't we? So I don't have my bullet in front of me. So if you would stand. Are we going to do one more, Dave?
outstanding. We're going to do one more. If you would stand and enjoy with David, that would be outstanding. <laughs>